This is Daniel Fagella, head of research at Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research. You're listening to the AI and Business Podcast. And this is a special AI Futures Friday episode. In AI Futures, we cover not only the near-term AI use cases, but the more long-term implications and consequences of where this technology is taking us. Our topic is a topic that I don't think we've ever covered on the show, and that is romantic relationships. In the world of generative AI, we're of the belief here at Emerge that there are some very significant consequences of Gen AI for the future of human relationships, and we wrote a very lengthy article called Artificial Intimacy. If you go into Google, you type in emerj.com slash artificial intimacy, you can see that full article there and check it out. But that that article just scratches the surface of some of the bigger consequences that we're likely to see in the future ahead. And we have a guest who's going deep with us in this episode about the future of sex and of emotional connection when it comes to generative AI. And that guest is Dr. Pani Farvid. She's a PhD in psychology, and she's currently an associate professor of applied psychology at the New School in New York City. Dr. Farvid dives in with us as to where AI is already beginning to affect the nature of romantic relationships today and what they might look like in the future. I think for most of our listeners, it would be seen as science fiction, this idea that AI might completely supplant romantic relationships for a large portion of the population, but that may be exactly where we're headed. So I hope you enjoy this episode. This is a teaser for an entirely new podcast that we're launching called The Trajectory, which is all about covering long-term AI consequences. To learn more about The Trajectory, go to emerj.com slash tj1. That's emerj.com slash tj1, tj like trajectory, and then just the number one. You can sign up for the newsletter there. You'll be notified when that new podcast goes live. Without further ado, though, let's dive in with Dr. Farvid. This was a very entertaining episode and a topic you will not hear very often here, but it was incredibly eye-opening for me, and I hope you enjoy it. Let's dive in. So, Professor Pani, welcome to the program. Hello. Nice to be here. I will tell you, you are the first person ever on this show to speak about this topic. I don't know if you'll be the last, but this idea of sort of artificial intimacy is very new for us. I'm going to connect the dots to our listeners, and then I'm going to pass it back to you. For our listeners here, we recently put out an article called Artificial Intimacy on Emerge. You can just Google E-M-E-R-J and then Artificial Intimacy. We paint a bit of a big picture, and Pani, you and I were talking off microphone here about this idea of AI going from simulating images to simulating video to simulating VR immersive video experiences that have some biofeedback that are calibrated to the user so it super satisfies the user and that there might be this transition. This is our supposition in the article and you do not have to agree with it. That eventually the physical satisfaction might come much much more simply through hyper-calibrated AI conjured experiences dialed into the individual user super deeply than by any kind of physical partner. And then eventually that might even go to simulating emotional connection and support and empathy better maybe than a, a human could with another human. I want to start with the physical and just get a sense of how real is this consideration of AI doing a better job, if you will, than a fellow human being? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question and something that um, we've actually thought about quite a bit in the work that I do. And in a, a way to kind of perhaps simplify it or take it back to a parallel consideration is, you know, when I was doing some research on heterosexual casual sex some years ago when hooking up was hot topic, you know, some of my participants would say, and, and excuse 
the language I'm going to be using, but they would say things like, you know, you are looking for that other intimate body to be with you. For example, I can get myself off much quicker and faster at home, but there's something extra that's going on when you're in intimate proximity within the human body. And I think what we're looking at now is kind of this murky area where that sort of physical feedback or imagery or the kind of emotional intelligence or emotional connectivity that might be on offer could be blurring some of those lines. I mean, nothing's going to be the same as having another human body next to you intimately. But in terms of the type of visual imagery and pornographic content or sexually arousing content that you can watch, the more finely attuned that becomes to what you desire and find sexually pleasurable, both visually and then in terms of kind of like the perhaps physical sensations that can be kind of tied into it, it becomes a really interesting question of what that means. Yeah. You know, I'm sure you've, because you've been in this space for so long, I mean, already there's whole TED Talks about the topic of sort of pornography as it is today already very much potentially changing the way that young people and and maybe even not young people consider sex. We have this giant wave of young men who are sexless and potentially part of this, uh, among many other factors, could be the fact that there's this easy backdoor, which is this unbelievable, infinite library of the stuff that would be pleasing to look at that literally... The king of Persia 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, could not have imagined this many physical sights and, and, and sounds as a 12-year-old with a iPhone can now have access to. It feels like if that can change the brain and potentially bend behavior, what does it mean when you get immersed and you can swim in experiences that might involve I hate to tell they might involve your neighbor without clothes and with different features and with whatever else. Right. I mean, I can imagine there's an extrapolation from what's going on even today. Mm, yeah, I love everything that you've just brought up. There's so many different elements to kind of unpack. I feel like there is the ethical aspect of it. There is the consensual aspect of it, which links into the ethics. There is the psychological component, what it does to us in terms of relationships and relationality. But also there is the arousal issue. There's the kind of physiological side. You know, a lot of the literature that kind of talks about kind of addiction and different contexts. One of the things that, and I try to stay away from the kind of slightly moral panic ideology of porn is ruining sexuality. But we do have to remember that with pornographic content, there is an arousal component. And whenever there is an arousal component, it opens the door for the addiction component. Because yeah. if there's a much, if I'm feeling upset or sad, and there's a shortcut to shifting that affect by watching some pornography and having an orgasm rather than dealing with my feelings, that's going to create, that can lead to an habituated way of dealing with emotionality that maybe isn't the most helpful. It's the same way as taking a drink or popping some kind of, you know, prescribed medication that you're not meant to pop in that moment. But I think what I want to like, I want to like dial it back a little bit and really speak about, you know, one of the things that I continue to come back to this issue of technological development, both offering opportunities and also 
cautionary tales, like or yes. cautionary like possible futures. And I would say even with online pornography, and you know, I'm at the risk of aging myself. You know, when I was growing up, pornography was on VHS. Yes, um, yes, yes. Beyond the, there was like that, that <laughs> fine slippage between magazines and then VHS. Well, Different online it- pornography did not exist. And what I think differentiates those generations from the generations who've grown up with online free porn. And remember, the online porn is ostensibly 18 plus, but we know children as young as nine accidentally all drip through curiosity, curiosity, accessing it for better or worse. But I think, you know, one of the things that's very different for those who encountered online porn or have used it at a very young age is we encountered bodies and sex or intimacy before we often saw porn. Whereas younger generations since online porn are more likely to have accessed porn than before they encountered the body. Absolutely. Yeah, and what that creates is this really interesting notion of like, which is the feedback loop? How is your desire? Is it the chicken or the egg? When you become a desiring person, how is that desire created? Is it through the sexual stimulation imagery that you saw as a 10, 11, 12, 14 year old? Or has it come from elsewhere? And I think one of the things that is, has been, you know, going back to the beginning of the internet, if I can go that far back, is, you know, the internet had such promise to democratize knowledge, democratize access to all sorts of things, right? It promised this kind of possibility of a utopia where it didn't matter where you live, what you were doing, how much you earned, as long as you had access to the internet, there was a way in which it opened the door to a range of different kinds of communications or knowledge or markets that, you know, would be possibly democratizing. But of course, what we saw was that like many other things, and especially within kind of like the different kinds of economic models that we have within the world, the internet also became a place that is structured across power, right? And structural inequities that exist outside of the internet seep into the internet and become a part of that. And I just want to parallel this with kind of pornography, you know, so pornography could be this utopic arena where we really get imaginative about what sexual relationality, intimacy, erotica could look like. And I think as someone who's kind of examined sexuality for, you know, a few decades at least, I'm constantly disappointed with what you see in porn, Hmm. even expanded capacity to access content, curate that content to your own desire, produce the content from being out in the community. We kind of, unless you're getting really kind of independent or bespoke or, you know, individualized, much of pornography is very, very limited in the what it represents. It's You can pretty much put your finger on what's going to happen in terms of what you're finding. The characters might differ a little bit. There might be, you know, different configurations, different you know, appendages, different Sure, colors. sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. But, but the range of, you know, kind of what you're seeing is, is very limited. And I, and I guess this is where I'm, I would take, I, I wonder what would happen when AI becomes more active in this arena. Do we step outside of that? you know, kind of a hindered imaginary or, and can we be a bit more experimental and a bit more creative in a way that's more plural, perhaps more egalitarian? Yeah. And and that of course takes us into all sorts of different queries of like who's being represented, will things become interspecies, will they become machinic, 
organic and what does that mean but yeah and I guess this is my you know I'm always I'm always disappointed when new technology comes into our society because usually people's responses is through fear and yeah. the, the scenario like I remember when Facebook was coming becoming popular people were like no one will ever be able to talk to another human yeah, again yeah 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 and it hasn't really come true and I think this is the same with something like you know AI pornography like I think I like to think of it as both new technology is often double-edged and it's really about how we where we take it right and it's what we do with it do we let it slip into the mundane mainstream status quo unimaginative limited imagery and reproduction or do we as a society harness this new technology to do some cool and new things yeah and some some suppositions here so number one i i think you brought up vhs i mean vhs (laughs) would would not have had nearly the adoption that it did without pornography and i think the reason the audience needs to know this is because we're not covering this topic because this is a, you know, adult content podcast. It is absolutely very much not. It is a podcast about the implications and applications of artificial intelligence in how we do business and, and how we also live life. And this is definitely the live life category. So VHS was plowed forward into the world in large part by mm-hmm. pornography. The Internet, as you and I both know, was plowed forward into the world in large part. By pornography and it seems absolutely absurd to presume that the next transition will not be plowed forward <laughs> by this drive and so my suspicion is we have to consider what this is going to look like because to me this is the spearhead of where generative content affects human life in many regards and, and I'm, I'm also like you I'm not somebody that says oh my goodness the sky is falling I'm not like that but I do think the changes are are likely to be so drastic that we should talk about them you brought up a couple interesting points I'm just going to touch on and pass it back to you so you mentioned that there's an unimaginativeness to what exists today in kind of adult content I would say on some level I, I hate to tell you, it's kind of like if I if I go drive down my main street and I look at the restaurants and I say, oh, it's so unimaginative. Where's the dollars going? I, I, I wish I could I wish I could want everybody else in Waltham, Massachusetts to like Greek fusion cuisine as much as I do, Pani. But I, I hate to tell you, they might just not want it. It might not be where the money is. You know what I mean? And so on some level, eh, there is already something called Rule 34, Rule 43. I forget which one. It doesn't really matter. It essentially is this idea from the very dawn of the internet, this sort of joke came about that anything that exists, there is pornography about it. And so there <laughs> is there is quite a broad plurality. Any children's cartoon, and this is disturbing, but any children's cartoon, any Broadway play, anything, there's a drawn art or maybe some level of video art. But to your point, a lot of it comes to a, a strong confluence. I suspect, and I'd love to know if you agree or disagree here, that as people step into completely programmatically generated worlds, they will think, they will think that what they want is a proxy for the real world. I'll give you an example. Mariah Carey, 1998, in a hot tub, you know, doing these acts, right? That's what they go in thinking they want. I'm not saying I would want that. Definitely not. Totally not me. But maybe somebody else might want something like that, right? So, so, so they go in thinking they want that. I suspect very quickly, very quickly, when they calibrate what is actually getting them excited, 
the state space of novelty will expand to species, will expand to size, will expand to new kinds of physics that don't exist on Earth, will expand to new kinds of appendages that don't exist, will expand to all kinds of impossible and strange things that happen to tickle their fancy that, to your very valid point, have not been created yet. But what does it mean when the way that we satisfy ourselves is a blast off into a post-physics super world with a million appendages and a million male, mm-hmm. female, hybrid, robot, whatever things. Mm-hmm. What does it mean when that's what gets the job done? Because I think we, I think people go in for what they think they want in the real world, and I think it blasts off into vastly post-human kinds of experience. Do you agree with that? And also, what would that imply for how we would interact in society and what relationships would be like? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think, you know, my immediate response is that would be totally fine being completely that outsourcing sexual pleasure to me is a totally fine idea. (laughs) I think there's so much that we do say even in our kind of intimate relationships, there is such a burden to do so much for each other, you know, say in the Western individualistic context that you have a partner, you know, you're meant to be everything for each other. You're you're meant to have a continuously highly explosive sex life, rear children together, be funny, each other's best friend, be intelligent, look after kids, manage your finances. So maybe if we can outsource sexual pleasure, maybe that takes the, you know, burden off our shoulders. I'd be totally interested, especially the older I get. I'm like, the more things I can get off my plate, the better. Like energy is, you know, our energy like wanes and we get out, at least mine does. But what I think that the question that perhaps needs to come into what you brought up is it depends what you mean by the thing that gets the job done. So if you're just after the orgasm, that's very different to I want intimate contact, sexual erotic contact with another. So I think for me in terms of like, so if you're really just after that sort of physical release relief, if you can outsource that why the hell not? Does that mean that you're no longer than perhaps aroused, attracted, or desire your intimate partner or others in your life? That's a question to bring up and discuss. And then the other thing is, I think the only thing that I would have as a caveat is the ethicality of or, or we, the society needs to discuss possible ethical implications of what people might go to watch. So, you know, I think issues of power and consent still maintain important in the sexual realm, even in the realm of fantasy. So, you know, what, and, and, you know, we don't need to go down this rabbit hole, but I think it should just be noted that, you know, what you watch, how do we as a society monitor what someone is watching, say, in their completely immersive erotic experience? Like, does, you know, rules around pedophilia, animal, like bestiality come into laws around it, whether or not you morally are against or for there, if there are legal implications there in the everyday, what does that mean for the, for the AI generated world? And I think, you know, same with, you know, consent, like if someone wants to replay some kind of, you know, off rape fantasy, what does that all mean? So I think sort of some of those extreme cases. Yeah, yeah. But then also coming into also some of the stuff, more subtle power play stuff, you know, like if our society continues to push 
kind of very gendered norms or raced norms around desire, sexuality, masculinity, femininity. You know, I still get very disappointed whenever you, you know, Google or, or even AI generation, if you put in something like, you know, a, a typical woman from a pornographic film, you still very much get that kind of um, kind of Barbie doll looking imagery, right? Giant breasts, well, small. I, I think we, we have to we have to pause a little bit here, Pani, and just say, what do the statues in ancient India look like? What do the paintings on the Minoan walls look like? I really <laughs> hate to say all those doggone boomers and their evil visions of women. I, I actually think some of this stuff done been that way for a minute. But also bodies female sexuality, the most desirable masculine body and female body have shifted a they lot have, across they, centuries, they, as you know. They as have, you know, they have. But, but I th- we in- got the commonalities of large breasts or something like that. It's like, I, I think some of this has got to be excusable. It's like, but, I, but I, I'm I with you. agree. There okay. have been times when small breasts and big during the Renaissance, small breasts and larger hips and tummies were actually more attractive. So I, I God think bless them. God bless them. Yeah, yeah. Desire is very malleable. And sure, so I sure. Think, I agree with you. I agree with you. And yeah. this is a, di- you know, this is a different. <laughs> it is. It is. Like, yeah. I guess, you know, and and as a psychologist, what I'm interested in, you know, often is like, where does individualized sexual desire come from? And we know it's not something that's inborn. We know that it's shaped, curtailed, developed, reworked yeah. yes, yes, during yes. our lifetime. And I suppose I wonder if something like AI and technology has the capacity for us, especially when it comes to erotic content, to expand some of the kind of mundane ways that we're thinking about it today, but also kind of really help us maybe dig into some of those ethical questions that we've kind of really not dealing with as a society you know i often say to my students and others as as other theorists have said before in our contemporary context sex is everywhere and nowhere we mm. can access it as a at a fingertip at our fingertips in an instant but we don't really like to talk about it openly and yeah. i think like, yeah. this is great why you're having this discussion because you know this is a time when ai technology is maybe taking us in a direction to talk about these issues more openly in a way that you know no one's really talking about the effects of online pornography nobody wants to touch no. that it's too hard it's too hard i love this idea of it's everywhere and nowhere i think you're absolutely right about that it really is we're so inundated but at the same time if we really think about where is this steering us what does this do to us exactly. you know you you had mentioned exactly. as as a desiring being so many of these young folks are getting exposed to this very predictable pornographic stuff as a 10-year-old with a mobile phone, what does that do to when they finally do have a relationship? And I think I can see a world, you you brought up some really good points. I'm going to transition this towards the emotional side of relationship. You've already helped to guide that path for us today. So you brought up this idea of, hey, if we can take the burden of the release off of the partner, maybe that's a net good. And I think, to your point of malleability, a relationship has meant many things over the years. There was a time where it was just someone to have babies with to work the farm. It was a time where it was about transferring, you know, royal property to other royal property or something. There was a time when it was just a signal of status, but we were cheating all the time. There was a time there were the norms have been insanely varied about this. And so I think to me, some people feel like it's too jarring. I think it would be completely not out of the box to say it'll shift again. And it'll shift again, potentially. My current suspicion is this, and we're going to use this as a bridge into the emotional side. AI will scratch the itch of the desire for 
kind of the, the physicality of, of sex, which, which could be as low as the release, as you say it. But I, th- mm. I actually think part of it could be some of the mushier, gooier connection, feely stuff of the physical act, not, not just the purely the most base release element. I think that stuff eventually gets consumed by hyper calibrated personalized experiences with EEG with EKG where no human is going to know exactly how to do that precise physical thing with that set mm-hmm. of audio and video interaction with you customized to your preferences your real time feedback whatever and then relationships become okay I understand that you go off into your room with your devices and that's where that happens for you you understand I do the same thing but you know what we're both still special humans and you know, I make you a sandwich, I, I get you some nice birthday presents, and we've lived together for years, and so that's really special. But what happens when I have an AI system that is significantly more emotionally supportive of the challenges I'm facing at work? What if what if I have an AI system that can provide me with really concrete advice, which is how I feel loved, or as my love language is like, somebody give me something practical, right? Maybe its voice is like the ideal calibrated sweetness that like I love the most, And maybe that voice can even change based on my mood and what I'm going to respond best to. And what when the felt sense of a a soul, for a a lack of a better term, I'm not saying machines have souls or even that humans do, to be honest with you. But but the the (laughs) I hate to say it, hate to say it, but but yeah, the the idea that there is something alive, there there is a soul that resonates with mine and supports me deeply and robustly. Maybe in and so AI would have to develop at even a higher level than just the physical to potentially subsume that. But maybe that mm. would be subsumed, mm. and and maybe maybe there's no need to compete with somebody else who has their own you know childhood stuff or their <laughs> own their own you know desire of what to do with the with the cash in the bank or whatever else. Why even push mm. with that when there's when there is this ideal advice giver, emotional supporter, sexual mm. satisfier? Why leave that? You know, you said let go of the burden. What what happens when maybe we let go of all of them? I'd love to know what your mm. thoughts are on this and if this is realistic. Yeah, no, I really, really like that question and that transition. And I think it takes me to like a couple of different responses. You know, I think perhaps just to bridge some of the sexual components that will then kind of relay into the emotional components, for example, perhaps then also that it may be something that isn't so black and white. So that the sexual components even become a part of one's sexual repertoire, but they don't replace your sexual contact with your partner, but they become part of the sexual repertoire. And then the second thing is perhaps it's one where you end up being in those situations together virtually. That was mm-hmm. one thing I was thinking. Those okay. are some of the other possibilities rather You're than right. the black. You're right. They even, you know, I was saying the other thing I would say is, you know, it is possible at least to in the sexual component. And some theorists have talked about this a lot, the whole notion of how we give sex, at least from a, at a physical level, such a special place within society? Could it just be that it's the same as your partner going for a run? Then they go into their little room and do their thing. And, you know, so we can kind of think of it in that way. It's a solitary physical activity. But then I think the emotional aspect is complicated because I think, and the reason for this is we know no matter what theory of psychology you follow, this is one that I would hold that really really we would all get behind 
humans are social beings now whatever that means right we need connections with other humans and no matter whether you're a neuropsychologist social psychologist cognitive we know that we know we need other people and the second thing we know is that you know our sense of kind of our the ways in which we cognitively deal with the world and our emotionality and our capacity for empathy and so on and connectivity is is what makes us in many ways unique. And so what happens when the, you know, I think when you were speaking, it made me sort of think about sort of that whole kind of stepman's wife thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah lives although i don't want it to be gendered in that way because a woman or non-gendered folks could also seek similar like emotional companionship but it's that whole notion of do we prefer fake perfection or what is considered fake perfection and is it fake if it's completely curated and responsive to you because the the boundaries are blurring and they're already blurred. Like to me, I still find it very bizarre when we kind of say it often online to me, the spatial understandings of who we are, like it, there's a complete blurring of offline, online and identities, right? Yeah. So I think that's the other thing to kind of keep in mind. And, you know, so do we, do we want the imperfect and complex or do we want the completely curated to your needs and demands that is completely responsive to you and i think the two responses i kind of have to that is if we think about maybe desire sexually and or emotional satisfaction emotionally is it as satisfying when everything you want you get in the way that you want it does that then still become or stay something that you desire? (laughs) Because desire is the absence of something, right? You need to want it because it doesn't exist. So if all your whims, desires, and wishes are met in an instantaneous, is that still something that that you want? That's the kind of desire level. And then at a relational level, does that become interesting? Is that because we... (laughs) Perhaps, I and, and this could be different for different people, but perhaps one of the things that makes us tick is the intense interrogation, disagreements, contestations, le- discussions we have with other people when we don't agree and when we have to tease things out. So if you have a partner that's like, you know, honey, how was your day? I'm here for you 100% exactly the way you need that. I'm going to say all the things that you need <laughs> you hear in exactly the ways that you want them first of all does that let you grow as a human psychologically maybe you would need that partner or friend to be like hey i think you're the one that was out of line here and actually i think your boss was right so i think that's the kind of stuff i get to and i think when i look at things like you know the movie her which is very old now but other things that are about you know we're so into individualizing market forces in terms of this is specially curated and designed for you like from a business perspective yes 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 then we have to remember that at the higher metaphysical philosophical psychological and even emotional human level maybe that's not what we want something that's completely tailored to you can get pretty (laughs) old pretty fast. I love these points. I want to, we'll, we'll bat it back and forth one more time. I, I, I could hang out here for way longer than either you or I have today, but I think these are the questions to bring up. A few mm. things. Is it what we want? I think I sound wise and you sound wise when we say, <laughs> ah, the hedonic treadmill exists and why we humans, ought we not do it? You know, and, and, and then you would ask of me, Daniel, 
what percentage of things do you buy on Amazon versus going to the store and driving? And I would give you a number and then I would cringe a little bit. And then I would ask you a little bit about, you know, your entertainment preferences and how much of that is taking your horse to the theater. And then you would tell me a little bit and and we might realize that actually we're probably going to ride this bad boy just like everybody does. And that there were some people that locked into horses, but eventually they died. And their children did not lock into horses. And, That's and right. you know, you mentioned that there's this idea that we might come together in these virtual worlds. I see that as a world where the roads had some horses and some cars, <laughs> but we all knew the deal. We all knew the deal. We all knew eventually they're all going to get turned into fucking glue. We're going to grind mm -hmm. them up. I feel a little sketch about that. I would say the hedonic treadmill, I'm with you. I think there's a real danger there. I also think People more or less just get sucked into it. Whatever satisfies the circuit better, you're just going to do. I do it with my shopping. I do it with my this, with my that. And I think it's going to be really tough to resist. I would say also, and I'd love your thoughts on this. Eventually, the hedonic treadmill thing, in my opinion, leads us to brain-computer interface. At some point, people live in a complete paradise of everything they want, and they're still as unhappy as they are today. Mm -hmm. And they finally- If not more unhappy. If not more. And they raise their hand and say, it's the hardware. And then, mm -hmm. and then we- we get that plug and we make some real deal stuff happen. And I think that's like hardcore transhumanism happens when paradise mm -hmm. exists and we're still not happy. I think people should be able to see that today. Hey, guys, hedonic treadmill, that's not really going to do it for you. But no, until they're in full paradise and they're still as unhappy as they are now, they're not going to realize mm -hmm. it's a hardware problem. The final thing I'll touch on, though, and bat back to you is this mm -hmm. idea of is there something, you know, about a physical human that sort of is more sacred. And my my supposition mm -hmm. is here, I see three-year-old kids who are six inches from an iPad eight hours a day. And I ask myself this question, how sacred is the real compared to the virtual for this child? Which one is more real for this child? And by the time mm -hmm. they're 20, how will that experience be? And if, if we think that our sacredness of the flesh, because my first, you know, girlfriend at 17 was real and not virtual, mm -hmm. that that will carry to humanity as some kind of religious dictate, I think that's ridiculously mistaken. And I suspect that people born into the virtual may mm -hmm. stay there and that may mean something for the species. I, and any comments mm -hmm. on that? Mm -hmm. We're going to have to wrap on this so you get the sure. opportunity to put the bow tie, but let me know where you're headed. Well, you know, do you know what? And I think this actually, this is, we need more research in this area. This is such a great question. And I'm going to tie it to, you know, I think we need more social scientific research. And this is why I often, I know more and more technological businesses as well as departments, you know, in universities and things are collaborating with humanities and social science scholars. But I think we need to be collaborating with each other much more. I want to work with a lot more, you know, technological experts in this area myself. But I think this is, these are the big questions of our future. And I think we need more experiential research on it with individuals and young people who are engaging in new with new technologies in different ways you know I, I was one of the first people to publish the first experiential paper about tinder use and that Whoa. feels like it was decades ago <laughs> yeah yeah it does doesn't it <laughs> ridiculous but i think and one of the things that's challenging for researchers is that research takes time and the domain the technological domain is 
rapidly evolving and we're trying our best to keep up. So I think, A, putting more into R&D, government, businesses should be, you know, corporations, different enterprises should really be increasing their partnerships with different universities and research institutes to do this work and from a really ethical and socially engaged manner. And I also think, you know, there is a, a range of different theoretical branches within the humanities and social sciences that are already collapsing the boundaries between machinic, organic, online, and offline. So kind of seeing a future where a lot of this will be hybrid. And I think this is going to be the biggest, one of the biggest challenges or predicaments or paradoxes of our time as we go further into this sort of like technological unknown. When is a robot or a AI figure in your computer considered to have the same rights, feelings, or, you know, needs as, yeah. as a flesh and bone human. But I think, you know, there is some really great philosophical sort of work being done here. But this is also a time where, you know, folks in the world of AI business and also in the world of social sciences could come together to kind of really unpack what it means to have consciousness, what it means to be a human, and how do we perhaps even create a better world by unpacking what things like AI, automation, and absolute kind of, you know, embodied curation means for our society. Yeah, but I think, you know, we, these are philosophical, you know, issues. And I do think it's taking us to an arena of that whole, you know, the old school hyper kind of capitalist hyper growth and and like abundance and the culture of kind of accumulation and extraction isn't going to work. We've got to be more fine tune and calibrate where we're going to lead with this. And then I guess perhaps I know we're running out of time kind of really bring this to a close is this notion that I think this is where policy also lacks particularly in, I guess, the U.S. context, because it's so, there's such a great, private entities and private businesses have so many sort of like such great rights. However, with sort of places like the U.K. or Commonwealth countries, the, you know, governments can be more involved in policy development, but even they are behind. So policy, research is behind, policy is even further behind when it comes to perhaps safeguarding us towards some kind of annihilation, which I don't believe needs to happen. I just think, you know, the smart people, the people who are engaged in this, there should be greater conversations across many different facets of society to do this in a way that's considered and, you know, really setting the scene for the kind of next era of humanity, whatever that may mean. Yeah, look, I I, I have to say, you and I both know there's so much more to say here, but you're taking us right to the next gateway, which is the post-human transition. So there you go, audience. We've left you in a nice, easy, comfortable place to wrap up this conversation. Professor Pani, this has been an extremely fun conversation. For our audience, it's a very new topic. I think it's so important for society, and I'm really grateful that we had your perspective here. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. It was wonderful. So that's all for this episode of the AI and Business Podcast. Thanks for joining me here on this Friday Futures 
episode. I'm not always the one hosting the podcast now. We're lucky to have Matthew DeMello running some of our weekday episodes covering all kinds of interesting use cases across industry. But every now and again, when there's a topic of particular interest, I'm going to dive in. I'm going to grab the microphone and I'm going to run with it. And I hope that for those of you tuned in today, this was eye-opening in terms of where we might be headed. I'm relatively convinced that uh, for a large portion of, of the first world, technology will will supplant romantic relationships in the coming years. And I think we're going to start seeing that sort of from the very loneliest of our population bubble its way all the way up to people who otherwise really do have human romantic options, but they choose to lean in the direction of technology. So we'll see where it goes. But Pani was a tremendous guest, and I really want to give her a big thanks. And I'll mention again, if you're interested in these longer term consequences of artificial intelligence, I'm launching an entirely new podcast called The Trajectory. This is about covering the power dynamics of the global AI players who are increasingly going to be wielding influence around the world. The trajectory kicks off with an episode with Dr. Yashua Bengio, the premier machine learning researcher on the globe, arguably sort of the big name in deep learning and machine learning itself. Of course, you have Hinton and Lacoon and some of those other players as well. But Jan kicks off with us talking about where he thinks AI is taking humanity and what he likes and kind of importantly doesn't like about that current direction. You can learn about the trajectory and stay ahead of it when it launches in October by going to emerj.com slash tj1. That's emerj.com slash tj1. TJ like trajectory and then just the number one. That'll let you sign up for that newsletter where I'll notify you of this new podcast called The Trajectory when it goes live. Really excited to dive into these topics. And again, glad to have you with me. I look forward to catching you in some of our future episodes here on the AI and Business Podcast. Stay tuned next week. We'll be diving back into the business stuff. And I look forward to catching you then. 